Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 18, where we're traveling to 1960 and the 17th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Elliot Carter for his second string quartet. And this will be the first of a couple times we'll get to talk about Elliot Carter, but we always like to start and see what our experience was with each of these composers. So Andrew, uh, what, what's your experience with Elliot Carter and his music? Well, I think after a long drought <laughs> in the 1950s of the Pulitzer, we've entered back into a composer that I know a lot about, that I've taught a lot about, played his music. So Carter is one of those kind of, I mean, we have to go back to Ives and Copeland, I think, to get a composer of this stature in terms of still current, people still talking about his music, people still playing his music. So, I mean, I was hearing about Carter from the very beginning of my undergraduate days. Mm-hmm. What about you? Yeah, uh, similarly, uh, I think once you get into Ives, you you certainly learn about Carter because of sure. a lot of connections there, uh, kind of a well, I, I wrote about him too, wrote about their relationship and some of the issues that uh, Ives and Carter had with one another. And well, mainly Carter had with Ives and th- that be kind of a negative anxiety of influence and some issues that uh, we'll, we'll put the link in case anybody's really wants to dig into uh, that. They can read, read the article. Um, but I think the first time I really came across him was at the University of Illinois and a friend of mine, uh, I've mentioned, I may have mentioned before, playing on a woodwind quintet called the Ill Winds, and we played only 20th century music, and we were from Illinois, so the Ill Winds. But uh, one of the surely you had t-shirts, we, we should, you had swag for the Ill I Winds. Know, we should have had a t-shirt at that time. I know. Uh, the the oboist and the flutist, I think, took and took a chance and actually played Carter's sonata for flute, oboe. Uh, cello and harpsichord harpsichord yeah and it is a great work and uh, later on the oboist said what were we thinking how did our oboe (laughs) teacher let us do this and how could wow we were so young and naive and thought we could just try it because it was it's really hard and i remember hearing it in smith hall being performed and uh so there was something i I bought that cd and uh, got really into his music and it's kind of stuck with ever stuck with me ever since i i will talk about his you know the, the listening experience and the music itself but uh it, i find him a very very fascinating person and one well who's, yeah i mean just such a different background well one of the things that i think that you point out there that has always kind of i think stuck in my head since i first encountered carter when he was first introduced to me it was okay so this is a hard composer yes, yes. this is a complex composer this is not an easy listening composer. You have to work for this composer. And I think that that kind of sheen remains around Carter. And when people talk about his music and his legacy, I mean, we'll see this today mm-hmm. talking about the piece, but that a lot of the kind of conversation is around that he's a serious artistic composer. So I think that kind of, uh, we've been talking a lot about populist composers. I mean, right. Minotti yeah. and Barber yeah. and John LaMontagne, last couple of composers we've talked about were specifically aiming for a wider, more popular audience that was interested in more kind of romantic era sounds. This is really a change. Mm-hmm. Moving into Elliot Carter in 1960, it's kind of nice we begin a new decade yeah. and 
a really kind of new direction for the Pulitzer. Very much so. That's uh, really well said. Uh, it, it not only is he complex and challenging, but I think he also comes from a very intellect, like very intellectual background and upbringing, and just whole aesthetic about him is very kind of the a point I make is that it, really the, the peak of high modernism and just the most kind of obsessed with complexity and progress and all of these sorts of things and you really hear it in this piece and that that does represent a little bit of a switch even though he has as we know a lot of connections with previous Pulitzer winners uh, in fact he studied with one of them I, Walter Piston Ives was his mentor and we'll we'll get into all that stuff but it's yeah he's he, he was kind of made, born to win the Pulitzer Prize in some ways. He really was. <laughs> and that's probably why he won it multiple yeah, times. Yeah. All right, well, maybe we should get into telling the story. Telling the story. So maybe we should talk a little bit about Carter's background since you were just alluding to that. Um, very prosperous family, yeah. uh, very uh, intellectual family. I mean, he was fluent in French and English, both as a child. Um, traveling all over the world. He goes to Harvard. So he's part of that world as well, which we've been talking a lot about around the Pulitzer, that kind of uh, Ivy League education. He studies uh, with Walter Piston. And not in music, by the way, too. He wasn't a music student right away. Was a, Right, his undergraduate. Yeah. English literature, Greek philosophy, all those types of mm -hmm. things. It's not until his master's yep. that he goes to study music. Uh, studies with Walter Piston. He goes to study with Nadia Boulanger, of course, because Piston had been a student, so that connection is there. But I think for you, the most interesting <laughs> connection that stretches back to his uh, teen years is his connection with Charles Ives. Yeah, they have a very they had a very long relationship with one another. When he was a young boy, as you mentioned, he would go over to Ives's house in New York City and listen to music, talk about music, and he learned a lot from Ives and. Ives actually wrote him a letter, sort of a sort of a letter recommendation to get into Harvard. It's more of a, I can vouch for young Elliot Carter. He's a good upstanding person and <laughs> and he would be a... So Yale boy a, writing for a yeah, Harvard that's right, school. A Yale boy writing for Harvard. Good, good point. Uh, so he, so he kind of helped grease the, the wheels for Ives to get into, or for Carter to get into Harvard. Uh, and so they had this relationship and he, uh, Carter wrote... Well, to make a long story short, what happened was the premiere of the Concord Sonata, of Ives' Concord Sonata, happened in 1939. Carter wrote a review of it, and it was quite negative, and it uh, made it hurt Ives a lot. And so he spent the rest. Carter spent the rest of his life trying to make up for it, in writing articles and saying, "Oh, I really did learn a lot from him." And yes, he was very influential, but Ives said he was hurt forever and that has sort of never repaired the relationship so uh, that's one of the the sad things about it but yeah uh, you can see and actually this piece we're going to talk about has very much of an ives at yeah. least in its conception not not really the sounds but the the conception i think is very ivesian so yeah very and we can see a lot of uh, a lot of these connections that we've been talking about i mean I think one of the things that we've discovered looking at now 15 years, <laughs> over 15 years of the Pulitzer is how much of an old boys club mm -hmm. it was. It's like, oh, you know, it's it's so-and-so's turn next, so hand it to them. Um, and we can see that. I mean, musically, you listen to Carter and you think that it's such a departure from what's gone before. But if you look at his pedigree, it fits right with what's 
been awarded before. So Piston, his teacher, had won. And in fact, will win. Piston mm-hmm. will be the next winner. So that connection there, we talked about Ives winning. Um, Carter was working at these schools. He was teaching at Columbia University. Right after he won, he was teaching at Yale University. So another, he has this... Another Nadia Boulanger person. Another Nadia Boulanger student. So all the kind of markers that we would expect, like you said, born to win the Pulitzer, they're all there yeah. uh, by the time he comes to win. But the music is very different. Yes. So as a Boulanger student, you would expect that he has kind of a neoclassic phase. He, he writes music in that style. But by the 1950s, he's really switched and moved into a completely different stylistic course. And I think by the time you get to this piece, the second quartet, he's in a totally new world again. And this is when I think of Carter's mature style. This is what I think of is the style of the second quartet. Definitely. the Some of his early music... There's a, a really cool piece called the Holiday Overture, and it's it's yeah. really it's very neoclassic, very flashy, great orchestration. I think Copeland looks at, oh, this looks so hard for I can't even too hard to process, too much counterpoint, too much going on, and it is it's very busy, very, but it's exciting. But you know, so that was kind of neoclassic thing, and then it was his cello sonata where things changed, and he got into, of course, his most famous term that is associated with him is metric modulation and working on proportions and uh, changing the whole idea of relationship of time and music and how they fit together. And so that first quartet, this we were talking about quartet number two, his first quartet still had a little bit of remnants of the earlier period, including a great Ives quotation, I might add, from the first violin sonata, but that's, anyway. Uh, but so there's still- You can't, can't get, get away, away from, from Ives. I, no, you can't, he's-, he's in 2001, 2000, he wrote a piece called Remembering Mr. Ives. So this this is a lifelong connection that Carter and Ives, sort of like a spiritual father or something. And uh, so, yeah, even so, he's always haunted by him. But then what, to me, what sounds different in this piece when we get into it is it's much more European sounding, much more yes. of the the... Darmstadt or the kind of really avant-garde Boulez, that Stockhausen, that kind of music, much more than anything we've heard before in the American Pulitzers. Yeah, very influenced. I think you're absolutely right. Very influenced by what was going on in Europe at the time and something we hadn't seen. I mean, even the European influences we had seen in people like Manati and Barber mm-hmm. was a European influence from pretty much before World War One and maybe even before the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, very much an older style. Mm-hmm. This piece was commissioned by the Stanley String Quartet, uh, University of Michigan, which is, you know, one of these storied string quartets, particularly in terms of um, their association with modern American music, (laughs) probably most famously the, the, I, uh, the, the, probably most, probably most famously the Crumb Black Angels was written for the Stanley String Quartet. So uh, this is a, a string quartet that knew its way around difficult music. And when this was delivered to them, they actually passed on doing the premiere. They looked at the score and they said, we'll pass. And the score went to the Juilliard Quartet, which actually did the the premiere of the piece, even though they hadn't commissioned it. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. If you've looked at a Carter score, they are very, very difficult. And just they to are. follow to, you know, you can, you can go to YouTube and you know, everybody posts the scores with the music you can follow. And it's not easy to follow because there's one one technique that he, he was an excellent contrapuntalist and uh, he used to talk about how 
Nadia Boulanger would have them transcribing motets and and Renaissance counterpoint and Bach and he just they would sing through all these parts and uh, very very contrapuntally minded so, and that that it, it, the piece sounds very much like that too it's it's very linear there's not a lot of up and down uh, it's very very much that way and so I could see just for the quartet getting this piece just how do they even start rehearsing it it's just so difficult to even make any sense of it nothing's lining up at all well i don't know when they got it but if it's true to the way most commissions work they didn't get the piece that far ahead no. of when the premiere was probably <laughs> supposed to take place so i probably looked at it and went uh we'll let someone else do this <laughs> yeah who, who has a little bit more time and the juilliard but maybe if that oh, and the juilliard quartet did end up recording all of carter's quartets as did the pacifica quartet uh which is a more recent one so there there have been a couple brave <laughs> brave quartets uh you know who did take these on but it was tough so well let's figure out why maybe some of the why is why is this so hard and what's going on as we go behind the notes behind the notes okay so we talk about a string quartet one of the things that we typically think of is the kind of Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, four-movement quartet that's really kind of a miniature symphony. That is not what Elliot Carter is doing here <laughs> at all. So four movements, there are four movements that you can kind of track, but in addition to those four movements, he has all these tiny little movements in between them, an introduction, a f- kind of conclusion, and then three little cadenzas that link it all together so that you get the four movements, but then you also get these tiny little movements holding it all together and the piece is played straight through. Yeah. There, there is no pause. It's not, let's take a breath. It is 25 minutes on the whole time. <laughs> and I, th- I don't know if we mentioned this, but is, this is the first Pulitzer Prize winner that's a chamber music piece. Right. I believe it's not a, not a or opera or a piano concerto or uh, the Appalachian Spring or a symphony or anything like that. I think this is the first actual chamber piece. And so that we'll get to the kind of the reception and how it was received. But yeah, setting up, thinking of the typical string quartet, like you mentioned, of what it's replicating, what it's trying to be. Carter did something in this piece that I think is, it's very interesting theoretically, which is to give each of the four instruments a character and to give them a part. They place specific intervals and they're, they keep coming back to things. They also have moods. So I think the violist is supposed to be a lyrical type uh, kind of expressive player. The first violin is always chattering and kind of jumping into things. And then the other parts do things as well. Uh, Oh, actually, I I can read from it here. It says the first violin whose whimsical ornate part is imitated by the other three with individuality. And then it changes and they're always going back and forth with arguments and companionship. So giving the string quartet, which is an abstract type of composition, giving it personalities and set uh, intervals and musical materials, that, as I mentioned earlier, that's not not totally new because Ives did that as well in his second string quartet. uh, There's a movement called Arguments where four people, four men, of course, go up to the mountain to argue and argue their points and they've got different styles and one is a Rollo and plays all the sweet stuff and the, the other ones are mean and harsh. So, uh, yeah, so Carter, I think, got some of that inspiration. But is this something that you can hear, do you think? Because you said, you know, it's this whole 20-something minute piece 
with all these nine sections, do, do you even detect these things going on? <laughs> I have a hard time hearing when the sections move from one to the other. Yeah. But yeah. one of the things I think we can point out is that Carter wrote a huge program note that goes along with this string quartet. And I think this is another way that he is borrowing from what's happening in Europe. If you look at mm. those kind of Darmstadt avant-garde composers of the 1950s in Europe, they're writing extensive even essays about what they're doing in their piece. And that's what he does here to tell you, okay, the first violin sounds like this. The second violin sounds like this. this these are what the characters are. So I think when he preps you in that way, you can hear it. And we have two examples so to see if maybe everyone listening can can tell the difference. First, I'm going to play the, the first violin, right? The mercurial uh, chattering voice of the first violin. Yes. And then the cello. And the cello is, is uh, more lugubrious, plays out of time, all these kinds of things. So see if you can kind of tell the characteristics of the two just by listening to them back to back. So first the first violin and then the cello. So what I like best about that, especially the cello excerpt, is you hear that cello, those long lines of the cello, and you can't figure out if it's hitting the beat or if the violins are hitting the beat. Like, where exactly is the downbeat? Where are you supposed to be listening? Because they're existing on completely different planes. Mm -hmm. They are. Uh, I think two things that I could say about listening to the piece like this. One is from Carter himself, and he's. it made a lot of sense to me. He said at one one interview, someone said, well, Mr. Carter, how do you listen to this music? I can't figure it out. And he said, well, uh, my music, uh, he said, why don't you write nice things and nice, pretty music and all of that? And he said, well, I live in New York City and uh, I just see constant commotion and hear all sorts of craziness constantly wherever I am. My music is reflecting what's happening around me. Why would I write uh, 19th century music with gas lights and lamp posts and stuff. <laughs> he said, "I live in Manhattan. This is this is what, it's my life. You know, this craziness and hectic nature, and that helps. I think helps you kind of get a con conceptual idea. But the way you described it, it almost sounds improvisational. I think there's kind of a written out improvisation. It almost seems like they're just pe four people sitting as far apart as possible, as Carter says, uh, to and just sort of." interacting with each other based on what they hear regardless of key tonal area anything like that it, there's kind of an improvisational character too so i love this um almost picture that you're saying carter is painting right it's almost like you can imagine new york apartment and mm -hmm. you've got each one of the instruments in a different apartment and yeah. they're playing their music loudly or watching tv and one of them's taking the broom and banging on the ceiling because <laughs> the other one's being too loud i mean yeah. If you think about it that way, you do get, a, uh, I think, a pretty accurate picture of the experience of listening to this quartet because there are moments where you just have no idea what's going on in terms of trying to make sense of how they're working together. And then there are moments where it just kind of opens up and you get these kind of moments of, I think, really 
complete beauty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you go back to the kind of crazy cacophony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it, usually if you're thinking about an older style of music, you, unity is a big deal. You want the, the composer takes starts with motives and then puts them together and they come together somehow. This piece is almost the antithesis of that. It almost seems like they, they never want to come together. They do a, sort of in parts, as you, you said, but it, it seems like the goal is not to come together. It's to have four independent people doing their own thing that just happen to be playing in the same room. And I can imagine that wouldn't go over well with a lot of audiences and could be a little baffling to people. Well, because I'll it's, admit it's baffling to me. It's, you know, yeah, and it's relentless because it's just like constantly at you. And even following the score and seeing the complexity, it, it still doesn't help a lot. So yeah, it, it, that's why it does feel sort of European in a lot of ways with that style of music. Well, it's also a piece that, so whenever we prepare these, we listen to these pieces multiple times to kind of mm-hmm. get them into our head. And this is one of those pieces that every time I listened to it over the past week when we were getting ready for this, I heard something and I liked it a little bit better. Yeah. You have to and work I understood it a little bit better. And it was just reminded, since we've been talking about Ives so much, Ives' comment about right, music that lets your ears lay back in an easy chair, <laughs> which is the antithesis of what Ives wanted. He wanted music that the audience had to come up to and give equally to what the composer has given to it. And Carter, I think, and sometimes asked the audience to go even farther, to come even more to the music than you might expect in other pieces. And I think that also is a barrier for a lot of people listening to it because you have to be willing to put in that effort. You have to read what Carter said. There are tons, and we can link to some of these as well. There are tons of analyses of these pieces that go into incredible depth of what's going on. The, The amount of craft, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the craft of these composers. The craft evident in this is just off the charts in terms of how he's put it together and the thought with which he's put it together. But in some ways, you have to do that pre-work to fully understand, I think, what's going on. Right. And that's why his music has been analyzed so much. It's a theorist's dream here. There's just so much to work with from an analytical perspective that in Carter himself wrote, collected all of his pitch material, like explained in a book, a sort of a theoretical treatise about what he does. And you know, there's just a ton of literature on this music and the the himself too he's carter was an excellent writer and a very uh, intellectually perceptive type of you know scholar writer and it, it's uh yeah you really have to work at it it's, this is not for an easy audience or for your you're not going to play this in the subway in manhattan somewhere i don't think well maybe maybe it'll fit in fine actually there are people about to say if you're in the subway you have all those you have it's sounds like coming music. yeah and I actually i think would would fit very well though people yeah. might not hear it because it would fit so well with what else was going on that's true they wouldn't even notice they'd <laughs> <laughs> be throwing their spare change at this piece yeah that's a good point so but yeah it is it, it, i think it's a very different type of piece in a lot of ways from everything we've looked at so far because it does now have this imprimatur for better for worse of a serious piece and an artwork that is to be studied and appreciated for its complexity and for its great detail maybe not as much for a an audience's perspective yeah good well i think that's absolutely true and i think the other thing that you have that makes this such a distinct difference from what's come before is the lack of kind of 
Americanness. Mm, that yeah. we had seen the Pulitzers had been really focused. I mean, especially at the beginning, but all through the past, you know, 17 winners, what we have seen is they tend to award composers who have an impact that they see on the American scene and seem to be speaking to the American condition. And this, in many ways, is the antithesis of that. We keep saying antithesis, but I think it really <laughs> is that it really is such an about face from the way that the Pulitzers had been awarded. And it's going to be interesting to see from here on out what happens to the Pulitzers as we move through the 1960s, if they continue in this vein, or if they go back to the way they were and Carter's just kind of a one-off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that will be interesting to see. So maybe we should see that. That's a good segue to figure out what else was on the uh, the docket for the Pulitzer board this year. So shall we uh, go into that? Hit or miss. Okay. So this is a big year, not not only for all the reasons we've talked about, but I have to say this. It is our last chairing by Chalmers Clifton. The end of an era. The end of an era. Chalmers Clifton, this is his last time he's chairing the committee. And so let's see, what does he say? This piece was premiered, as we mentioned, uh, in March 25th, 1960, it was played, uh, written the year before, of course. Uh, it was on the same concert as Juan Cristiano Ariaga. I think he was the sometimes called the Spanish Mozart. You know, it was from 18, oh, only lived to be 20, really 20 years old, 1806 to 1826. Hmm. Okay, and then uh, at the, wow, this is a heavy concert. So you've got that, then the Carter, and then after intermission, Beethoven Opus 131. So that's a, a heavy concert. That is a heavy concert. Yes, but uh, here we are. So a lot of crossouts on the jury report for 1960 here. And the let's see, we've got Hugo Weisgall, Six Characters in Search of an Author was one of the choices. Roger Gobe, who? Uh, his Iowa Concerto. It's funny why that one didn't win. Uh, <laughs> And then Elliot Carter here, and it says, the second string quartet first performed at the Juilliard School March 25th was reviewed, as we'll see, what you'll tell us about, with the warmest praise by Howard Taubman of the Times and Dr. Paul Henry Long of the Tribune, the latter a member of the music jury. Uh, under the circumstances, let's see, we are recommending Mr. Carter's Quartet for the Pulitzer Prize and Mr. Weisgall's Six Characters for second place. Mr. Gobe's Iowa Concerto becomes in third place. Now, what's interesting is there's a handwritten note uh, from, looks like Chalmers Clifton, that says, the Pulitzer Prize has received no direct word from Thomas Sherman, the third juror, and was not informed in advance of his departure. So of the three jurors, only two ended up voting. Yes. So very interesting. Maybe a scandal. Uh, somebody needs to dig into the Pulitzer Prize of 1960 and see what happened at this time. Hmm. Well, this re the remark about what happened, uh, the review that was in the New York Times, uh, I think kind of gives a, a sense of why it ultimately won. So I just want to read a little bit of that. This is the review, March 26, 1960. This is how it opens. 
With his second string quartet, Elliot Carter rivets his right to be regarded as one of the most distinguished of living composers. Hmm. So right off the bat. Wow. High praise. It was incredibly high praise. So he starts the review by saying, with his second string quartet, Elliot Carter rivets his right to be regarded as one of the most distinguished of living composers. So right off the bat, he lets you know this is a major work by someone he thinks is a major American composer and goes on to say he is not to be considered just American looking down on American, but he is the equal of any European composer, which I think tells you that even at his time, people were viewing Carter as this kind of universal more than a specifically American composer. Uh, Taubman goes on to say the quartet does not yield its communication without some effort on the part of the listener, which we talked about. Uh, But to one who has heard it in rehearsal and examined the score, it becomes more meaningful with each hearing, which I think is important to point out that to review it, Taubman went to the rehearsal. He got the score. Mm. I mean, he studied it Mm -hmm. instead of just what we would think of going to the premiere, listening to it, and then making his judgment. And he ends by saying this quartet has an excellent chance of a long life in time, many ensembles will be proud to be associated with it. Well, did that come true? <laughs> I mean, that's an amazing that's pretty, review of yeah. a first performance. Yeah, it is. Well, I like that he mentions the audience difficulties right away, that it, it is not a friendly piece to an audience. And that is, that's, uh, people have been having issues with new music forever, but I think it really hit a, particular point in this high modernist period here where audiences you can't get it on one hearing there's it it will just it'll be 20 minutes of just uh, incomprehensibility you won't know what's going on so that does represent a change because most of the pieces up to this point i think you could listen to once and enjoy or understand pretty well nothing too out there for the listener but this this does represent kind of a change in aesthetic that uh I'm glad that the, that he noticed that. And in some ways, I think he's prepping his audience. Right, right, right. Just to know, don't expect to go into a Carter and come away humming the pretty tunes. I mean, even our experience in listening to this piece compared to listening to the past few, you know, let's just talk about John LaMontagne. <laughs> uh, that was a piece that had immediate splash, had immediate effect. Yep. You understood what was going on and you were caught up in it. This piece we both had to listen to it a couple of times to really wrap our heads around it. And you have to be willing to put in that kind of time to appreciate the piece and to kind of really understand what it was that Carter was attempting to do. Mm -hmm. And it it is a testament here. I I don't know what, what does it say about somebody? Because probably what would you say Carter's best known for and about his own life, probably living to be, 102 i believe or one of the longest lived composers yeah he was extremely old and yet and composing to the end that's that's the thing and in not a very different like it did he didn't change his style a whole lot some there's some later pieces that are maybe a little more accessible but i think it, he was very consistent really from the 50s from around this period all the way to the the next 50 plus years 60 years uh, it was very consistent and that yeah, he really committed to his aesthetic viewpoint and kind of a good example of who cares if you listen in this yeah. point, he just kind of does what he wants, writes what he wants. And, and well, I think this piece, favor. this piece is great to win the Pulitzer because, you know, going back to our initial discussion of even why the Pulitzer existed and what it was attempting to do, 
I mean, this is a piece that represents for Elliot Carter kind of a change into the direction he's going to go for the next 50 years. Uh, but it also represents a change that's happening in the United States, I think, of acceptance of this style and a move from kind of the Copeland-esque um, Great Depression Americanness to a more avant-garde international style. And we'll have to see if the Pulitzer continues to recognize this type of music as we move into the 1960s, and especially with the departure of Chalmers Clifton, who, if you think about a single voice who has been guiding who gets the Pulitzer, this old boys club, I mean, that's the epitome to have the same person doing it year after year after year, awarding the same type of people, making sure the same type of music. I mean, this is going to be interesting to watch what happens as we move to 1961 and on. Definitely, definitely. Uh, And then, well, we're going to... the preview for the next episode we're going to go back well very much connected to carter himself but we're going to go back to pistons so that'll be interesting just to see how well what pistons music is like by that point if if piston has assumed some of these same characteristics you're, we're talking about here today in carter and, and in that period to see maybe it's different from the last time he won and so then i guess we have to ask here is elliot carter's second string quartet a hit or a miss well, of course it's a hit. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a substantial, amazing work. But it's also one of those that, if I'm honest, you know, on a Friday night, I'm not going to put on <laughs> Elliot Carter's second string quartet. No. <laughs> Whereas some of these pieces I might put on just to, to listen to. This is, I'm going to have to be sitting down ready to uh, devote my time to it. And as long as I'm willing to, absolutely, there's so much in it. It rewards repeated listening, it report, rewards repeated study in a way that I think many of the pieces that we have talked about the Pulitzers haven't to this point. I mean, there really is a richness here if you're willing to put the time in. Yes. What about you? Yeah, I think it's definitely a hit I, for all the reasons you said. I think it's hurt in a way by the fact that it's so difficult because I wish, I think seeing this piece, uh, I looked on YouTube, I couldn't find any performances of a quartet actually playing it. I would love to see a video or, or see it live because I think you might get a lot more out of seeing those disparate, voices and seeing the different parts physically and spaced spatially and that that's maybe a, a slight knock is that it's just so difficult to play that it won't get performed to allow that kind of ability to get into the piece as well but, but definitely there's I, so yeah you know you have to see those people arguing in their apartments i think that's, yeah. that's what you're gonna <laughs> really be able image. to tell what's happening in this yeah, piece i love that but it is yeah there is so much here and it is, you know, is, you really have to work it as music, but I do think there's a lot of interesting things in it that are worth deeper diving for. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, Hearing the Pulitzers. We'll be sure to link to a multitude, oh, including plenty. Dave's article about the relationship between Ives and Carter. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers for links between episodes. And then finally, as we were mentioning, you can join us next episode when we'll revisit Walter Piston, <laughs> Elliot Carter's teacher at Harvard, but this time for his seventh symphony. So until then, keep listening. Keep listening.